Well, good morning, everybody. And uh, let me be uh, one of many, hopefully, who have welcomed you here to Palmerado Christian Church. Uh, we are very excited to, to have you here with us, to be able to worship with you, to dive into God's Word together, uh, to have community with one another. And, and here at Palmerado Christian Church, we uh, want to be a place where uh, people are getting plugged into the people and the purpose of the church, a place in which we recognize we're not perfect people, but we've been changed by God to make a change in this world, and that we're people who've been called to be witnesses to who God is, what He's done, and how he loves, and like our initials for our church, plugged in, changed by, and called to our PCC. So hopefully it's something that's easy for us to remember, and even more importantly, something that's easy for us to live out. And so we're very excited to have this morning uh, with you here. And if we've not met yet, my name is JP, and I would love to be able to, to meet you after service. Uh, and we are going to be concluding a three-week series today called Resetting the Table with a, with a little subtitle of How Three Meals with Jesus Changed Everything. And, and the reason we're looking at this is we're looking at this idea of my daughter, Shaylin, and my mother-in-law set up the table beautifully for Thanksgiving. And, and then we have to clear it all up, and then you reset the table. And, and this idea of we may need to recalibrate or have our minds reset of what it means to have table fellowship with Jesus, what it means to, to sit at his table, to have eternal life with him, and what it means for how we invite other people into that. And so the first week we talked about the idea that at the calling of Levi, that Levi was a tax collector, he found out about Jesus, when Jesus had a meal at his house, and it was other sinners and tax collectors and, and, and bad people that were there. And the Pharisees said, you know, how come there are people who are bad? He eats with tax collectors and sinners. And, and Jesus says, I came not for the healthy, but for the sick. And the first week we talked about this idea that we know, many of us know that Jesus came for the sick, not the healthy. But not all of us know how he defines a healthy. And there should be a slide that comes up that's just that reminder of not all of us know how he defines the sick and the healthy, recognizing that the sick aren't just people who do bad things and healthy are the people who do all the good things. The sick are the people that are humble enough to recognize our need, recognize our need, not your need, my need, all of us, our need for Jesus. And if we think that we are healthy enough to do things on our own, that is when we miss out on the life that Jesus has for us. So the first week we talked about that. The second week we talked about the story of Mary and Martha and we hit on this idea that if we spend all our time working for God without spending time with God, we are in danger of missing the point. And so the point of that message was the idea that it's not that Mary did everything right and Martha did everything bad because it's this beautiful moment in which time with God should be in conjunction with working for God. It's not an either or good or bad. It's both and in order to truly be the kind of worshipers that have maybe Mary's heart with Martha's hands. And that's what we strive to do in order to be that kind of, those kind of people that just don't just work for him, but that we spend time with him. And so this morning, as we conclude, we're going to, to dive into one more meal in Luke 24, also in conjunction with John chapter one. And so with that in mind, I'd ask that you join me in a word of prayer as we dive into God's word together. Father, we thank you so much for this morning, and I thank you for each person that is here in this room, and I thank you for each person that is listening online later. Lord, I pray that they know that they are prayed for, cared for, and loved before they've ever walked into this room, and I pray that you 
would work in an incredible way. Lord, I pray that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak in a powerful, impactful, and personal way to each and every person. And we thank you for what you are going to do in advance. May you encourage us where we need encouragement. May you challenge us where we need challenging. And may you work in our lives in such a clear way that we know you have us here for a purpose. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, we alluded to it earlier how there's a lot of uh, sales going on and a lot of advertisements and you know, recently, I, I, you see advertisements on TV, all that stuff, but recently I ended up getting um, some text messages from someone who, uh, when I get really bad headaches, which unfortunately I get more often than I'd like to admit, um, I have, I use like an essential oil, which it's not like it cures everything, but it, it helps. It just provides a little bit of relief there. Um, and I purchased this a little while ago, and within the past two months or so, I've started to get texts from a woman. It's like, hey, I'm so-and-so from such-and-such company. Just want to let you know about these greatest deals that are coming up. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know you. Like, I have no idea who you are. And it's someone who has sent me things repeatedly over the past couple of months. And then this past week, kind of leading up to Black Friday sales, was sending things all the time. And, and so I got multiple texts. And I just wrote, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, I'd ask to be removed from this list. Because what is it? When someone tries to sell us something without actually knowing us or having a relationship or a connection, it just feels like it creates this distrust. I'm like, well, what, you know, what are you after? What are you, what are you doing? Like, I don't even know you. How did you get my number? Where is a 435 area code anyways? Like, I don't know these things and I don't know you. And so, you know, I, I know she's just trying to build her business and that's fine, but, but it feels disingenuous when you don't know the person. And we get bombarded with ads all the time. So you walk in the mall and, and there's the stores where you know you're going to be sold stuff, but then you feel like you're safe, but then there's the kiosks that are always just trying to talk to you and like, oh, do you have a cell phone plan? I'm like, yeah, I'm literally using it right now. Like, how do you not see that I'm here? And they try to keep asking you for things. I'm like, no, like I'm, I'm good. And I just want to, you know, not have to be bombarded. Shaylin and Elise, if they watch uh, TV and there's approximately like 800 ads that are going on for toys right now, and they're ridiculous. But it's one of those where, you know, like, ooh, daddy, there's this and there's this. I'm like, when the kids start to know the words of the advertisements, it probably means we're letting them watch too much TV. But anyways, it's just this idea of they're everywhere. Ads are everywhere, and it bombards us. And if we're honest, and, and let us be honest, because this is a place where honesty reigns, if, we, if we're going to be truthful and honest as Christians, even when we are well-meaning, when we want to do the right thing and we want to be good witnesses to people, it's very easy for us to fall into similar traps of bombarding people with Jesus without getting to know them first. And it creates a distrust. You know, I remember going to the Rose Bowl parade and we were sitting there, my wife and I, we went with Steph's parents. And as we were there, you know, you see these beautiful uh, floats and, and just this incredible thing. And then at the very end, I remember just as everybody was walking by that there were people that were holding signs talking about God's judgment and, and signs about these things. And they're just walking like they're a part of parade at the very end. Now, is there a place for us to speak God's word? Absolutely. How do you think that's received though when someone who doesn't, you don't know anyone is just walking around with a picket sign at the very end of a parade in which they weren't looking to or thinking that they were going to experience anything like that? It's well-meaning, but it may be misplaced. That we may have a well-meaning desire to reach people for the lost. As we should, we are called to be witnesses, but if we do it in a misplaced fashion, we may erode trust rather than build it. And so for us, you know, even I remember I went bowling with um, some friends when I was in high school, and they just invited, hey, my church is going uh, bowling 
I'm like, great, I'm horrible at bowling, but let's go. And we went, we played like a game or two, and then all of a sudden the youth pastor goes up, and, and my friend did not tell me that this was like an evangelistic event. I just thought I was going bowling. And so then all of a sudden, as the message is being given, I felt like there was a bait and switch. I felt like it wasn't clear. And all of a sudden I was like, well, I don't, would I have gone if I had known? Maybe. But if I had known, I at least would have been able to know that I could trust this person. And so we may have a well-meaning desire to reach people and witness, but if it's, we don't do it in a way that is uplifting and building a relationship, we may fall into the same bombardment of ads that people feel like we're just trying to sell them something, when instead we're just trying to show them how we've been sold out for Jesus. And so for us this morning, our main point today is that we want to talk about being witnesses. In fact, you are witnesses is the title of the sermon. But the best way for us to witness is to invite people to come and see about Jesus one threshold at a time. And there's a lot of verbiage to unpack there. We're going to hit on what thresholds mean. We're going to look at the idea of having someone come and see. But for our point and our main purpose this morning is that the main or the best way for us to witness is for us to invite people to come and see about Jesus one threshold at a time. As I mentioned, we're going to be in Luke chapter 24, and then we're also going to be in John chapter 1, so we're going to, we're going to be a little bit of both. But what I want to do is I want to read from Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 49. And in this passage, this is after the resurrection in Luke 24. And then this is also after the story when Jesus shows up and he meets the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And and they start to feel like... They're explaining everything to him, and then he, br- he blesses the bread, he breaks the bread, and he hands it to them. In the moment of handing the bread, they were reminded and shown who Je- that it was Jesus, and then he disappears. Then those two disciples, they run back, and they say, we've seen him, we've seen him. And that's where we pick up our story here in Luke 24, in this meal that we see here with Jesus. Verse 36, it says, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. But he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. Don't let the fact get lost on us that how did Jesus prove that it was truly him? One, he said, come and see, touch my hands, come and touch my hands, look at my side, look at my feet. That they were terrified because as the John 20 version of this story takes place, we see that the doors were locked for fear of the Jews. So the disciples are in hiding and all of a sudden Jesus' fully resurrected body comes through the doors, yet he's not a ghost because they could feel his hands, they could see his feet, they can see that. But let it not be lost on us that the way that he proved, another way that he proved in addition to touching the, the wounds, the other way that he proved that he was the resurrected body is that he ate with them that they sat at a table and he had broiled fish. Not my first choice if I was raised from the dead, but they had broiled fish. And so it's this idea that the food, again, it builds this idea that we might see food as a, or the dinner table as a filling station or a fueling station to where we really need to go. It's a, we might see it as a means to an end, but to Jesus, a table with him is the end. It is the picture of the banquet, it is the picture of the kingdom of God. And so in this passage, then what he does 
is he goes and he says, this is what I told you, verses 44. This is what I told you while I was still with you, that everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Just a minor detour here that the law of Moses, prophets, and the Psalms would be the way that they would refer to the Hebrew scriptures as encapsulating the entire Hebrew scriptures. It's called the Tanakh. And so the, the Torah is the law. And I don't remember what the Hebrew word for the rest, but it's this idea that the law was the first five books that then there were the prophets, and that's the major and minor prophets. And then the Psalms is another way for saying the wisdom writing. So basically what Jesus is just saying, he's just giving them a, a mindset of, out of your entire scripture, let me show you that what I said was going to happen has been proved throughout the entire scripture upon which you base your lives. That he recognized that you're going to see that the son of man, the Messiah had to come and he had to die and he had to be raised to new life. We see this as he continues on in verse 45. He opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. It's going to happen to all the nations, but you are the witnesses. It's going to start in Jerusalem. So, Verse 49, I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. Stay here until the Holy Spirit comes on Pentecost. And then that message begins to spread as we saw through the book of Acts, as we studied that a few weeks ago. And so we see that Jesus, he does all these things to prove that it's him, including eating a meal. But what we want to focus on this morning is the verbiage that you are witnesses. And what does that look like? So we refer to the idea that the best way for us to witness is to invite people to come and see about Jesus one threshold at a time. So let's unpack this idea with these five thresholds that are described in a book called I Once Was Lost by Don Everts and, uh, Don Everts and David Shoup. Um, and so Doug Shop, I'm sorry, he, they explain in this, what they do for this book is they ask college students who were once skeptical and now had a relationship with Jesus, tell us your story. How did you get here? And from thousands of interviews and stories, they've received research to show that there are typically five different thresholds, especially in this new generation of postmodernism and not knowing what truth is and moral relativism. There's, there's five thresholds that people consistently have to go through in order to go from a skeptic to entering into the kingdom in a relationship with him with Jesus. And so what they do is we're going to go through these uh, rather quickly, but for us to get a taste of what they are. The first threshold we talk about is from distrust to trust. From distrust to trust, but this isn't the idea of someone who has distrust towards God and all of a sudden is trusting God. This is the idea that every skeptic needs to be able to know they can trust one Christian. That there's a Christian in their lives that, that says what they say they're going to say, or what they say do they're going to say. They, they do all the things they're supposed to do, that they are trustworthy, that, that when there's a time of need, they're not too busy working for God that, to not spend time with someone in need of God. That it's someone who will stop on the side of the road to help someone out. I mean, it's this idea that we have to be trustworthy people. Yes, in our work and how we work, and yes, in how we are at school, and yes, how we are in our family, but we also need to make sure that we are trustworthy in our integrity, and that we don't do bait and switches, and that we are open and honest with people from the very beginning, that we allow people from their first step is they go, okay, I'm going to trust 
I'm going to trust you because you're trustworthy. That's the first threshold most people have to face and to cross over into a relation, from skepticism to relationship with God. The next one we have here is this idea from complacent to curious. Because even if someone trusts a Christian, they, they might just be kind of complacent and say, okay, well, I mean, you love Jesus. That's, that sounds cool with you. It's not necessarily for me. Um, I'm pretty good the way things are. I have my life the way I want it, and everything seems to be fine. So you do you, I'll do me, and, you know, we can still be friends. I trust you, but, but that's the end of it. So how is it that we go from a place of, of allow, helping someone walk through that threshold of no longer being complacent to being curious? What you and I must do is to live curiously. We must do things that make no sense to people in the best way. So why is it that you, you wake up early and you go to church service on Sunday? Oh, well, because God has meant so much in my life and, and I want to be able to worship him with other community and I want to dive into his word and I want to I be plugged in and changed by God and be called to be witness. I, I, that's why I do it. Oh, okay. Hey, why is it that you go and you serve for the homeless once, once a couple years, every, sorry, a couple times a year? Oh, well, you know, I recognize that out of my own, I was poor before God, but out of his glorious riches that he has given me eternal life, I want to, I want to serve those who are less fortunate. Hey, why is it that you go on a mission trip and, and why do you fly across the world in order to, and raise money to do so in order to help people far away? Well, you know, Jesus, he came and he was on mission and the call to mission isn't just to go across the overseas, but wherever we go to be on mission with him. And, and so I recognize that God's called me to, to help people far away, but he's helped call me to help people here too. But if you and I, if we don't live curiously, then there won't be questions about people being curious about Jesus. So yes, we need to be trustworthy, but we also need to live curiously enough that someone goes from complacency and say, something's different about you. What is that? And they cross in that threshold too of being from complacent to curious. Number three, the idea we have here is that someone from being, who's being closed to change to being open to change in their life. This is the hardest one for people to face because people could be trusting a Christian and they can even be curious about Jesus. But the second that we as speaking truth and love are telling people, well, you can't live the same way you've always lived when you trust Jesus. Wait, 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 you're telling me that I can't do the things I've always done and said the things I've always said the way that I've always wanted? Wait, 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 you're telling me that I can't be on the, carrying my own crown and be on the throne of my own life? Wait, you're telling me that this is going to cost me something? We say, yeah, cost Jesus everything, and we're to be like Christ. It's going to cost us things too. And so there's this moment where people have to then be willing to say, okay, I am just open to, to God doing something because maybe they're just sick of the way that things have been. In my life, it was I'd been depressed and suicidal. I didn't want to go back to that moment, and so I recognized I want to be open to what God has for me. And so maybe we have to just help people walk alongside that. How do we do that? We, are, we show Yes, we're trustworthy. Yes, we're living curiously, but we also show how we've been changed by God. We share that. Hey, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once struggled with this, but God has helped me. I've, I've once been here, and now things are different. Why? Oh, because you tried harder? No, because of God. Because when you have table fellowship with God, it changes everything. Let me tell you more about that. Number four is this idea from meandering to seeking meandering the idea of, you know, just kind of walking at your own pace and, and someone who maybe is open to change, but they're not really ready to commit to anything yet, nor are they really ready to actually pursue Jesus. 
They might be people who are just, you know, I, I believe that God can do something, but I'm kind of, you know, I'll, I'll go upon, along my own path to the same mountain, right? Like God, all the different religions are the same or, or whatever it is, but it's this idea they're just kind of meandering and kind of going along rather than I have a true seeking after who Jesus is. Because what do we see in Matthew 7, 7 and Jeremiah 29, 13? We say this idea that if we seek him, we will find him if we seek him with our own heart, our whole heart. That's Jeremiah 29, 13. And then Acts 7 talks about ask, you will find, seek, or ask, and it'll be given to you. Seek, and you will find, knock on the door, will be open to you. If we seek, we will find. So if people get to this stage that they're not just meandering anymore, but they're intentionally seeking God, we might be able to help walk alongside them. And maybe we're not perfect. We know not all of us, you know, some of you say, well, I don't know all the answers. Awesome. Then you can genuinely say, I don't know the answer to that question, but guess what? I will find the answer to it. And guess what you do? You find the answer to it and you follow up with them to help them in their seeking. You show that you're trustworthy with their questions. And then the last one is the idea of entering the kingdom. Entering the kingdom. That there will be a moment for people who have been far from God and they've been skeptical, they're curious, they're open to change, they're seeking, then there's a moment where they actually have to know that we all actually have to have a moment in which we surrender our lives to him and enter into his kingdom. We, we can't just say that, oh, narrow is the gate, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and narrow is the gate that leads to him, and then just say, we're going to stand outside the gate for all of eternity. We have to take those steps. We have to enter into the gate, enter into the place where Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. We have to confess that. And we have to say that, recognizing that I've confessed with my mouth and I believe in my heart that Jesus is Lord. We have to make that confession and enter into the kingdom. And that is the, a brief overview of the five thresholds that all of us have been in at one point or another. And even more importantly than that, maybe not more importantly, forgive me, but as importantly, the people around us that don't know the Lord are in those different phases as well. Some of the people you know that are, reach, that are far from God are in stage one, some are in stage three, some are in stage five, but knowing these th thresholds can help inform how we reach them, how we are witnesses, how we invite them to come and see about Jesus one threshold at a time. And so for us, we look at this idea. I want to give you a brief idea. I'm not going to read all the verses, but if you want to make a note in the story of Nathaniel, John chapter 1, 43 through 51, this is a story in which we're, we're going to see a rough idea. It's not point by point. It's not perfect. Um, but it's a rough idea of how this story of a skeptic moved to giving his, his life to Jesus. So in this passage, we see that Philip had just found out about who Jesus is. And he immediately goes and he finds Nathaniel. And Nathaniel, he's sitting there and, and Philip says, we have found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. And as a skeptic would, he just... Nathaniel just says, Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? It's this idea of like, when I, when I got here, it's, you know, I'm a, I'm a San Francisco Giants fan among other things. And it's like, oh, has there ever been anything good from San Francisco Giants fans? And you're like, fair. Yeah, fair. But does, it's still here. But this idea of, can anything good from that place? He's skeptical. But notice what happens. Philip says, come and see. Come and see. And because Nathaniel had already trusted Philip, there was already a trust there of someone who believed in Jesus. He trusted him, so he was curious enough to go find out about Jesus. 
He was curious enough to go and say, well, who are you? And things like that. Then Jesus says, oh, here comes someone with whom there is no guile or, or with no deceit. Nathaniel says, how do you know me? And he says, I saw you when you're at the fig tree before Philip showed up. We don't know what that story is. We don't know what happened at the fig tree, but that was enough for Nathaniel to say, you are the son of God. Rabbi, you, you are, you're it. Because he had trusted someone and Philip had already had that relationship with him. He was curious enough to go find out about Jesus. And then he came over to Jesus. He said, you are the son. He proclaimed who Jesus was. And then I love this. uh, In verse 50 and 51, I believe it is. What Jesus says to him. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. And you will see greater things than that. Listen. For those of us who have given our lives to the Lord and surrendered and have entered the kingdom, giving our lives to the Lord and entering the kingdom is not the period at the end of our testimony. It's an exclamation point, but guess what? Greater things are coming. That September 20th, 2003, when I gave my life to the Lord and entered into his kingdom is, is the most amazing day in my life, but I've seen greater things since then. Besides me being in a hotel room and crying and giving my life to the Lord, I've seen lives being changed, people far from God being brought near to God. I've seen people coming from broken homes, finding a family in God. I've been able to see baptisms of people of all different ages. I've been able to see kids or students who were once in me and Steph's small group, then being able to have their own marriages, do their weddings, dedicate babies, and be able to see them raising their own kids into a new life with the Lord. I mean, we're seeing greater things. And Jesus says, yes, you understand. You're in the kingdom. That is awesome. And guess what? I am not done using you. This is not the end of your story. Greater things are coming. And then in verse 51, he says, he then added, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and and descending on the Son of Man. Greater things have yet to come. Greater things are still to be done. And we get to be a part of that. And so again, Nathaniel, it's not a perfect one-to-one ratio or exact blueprint, but it gives us a rough sketch of how someone could go from being skeptical, trusting someone, curious about it, open to change, seeking, and then entering into his kingdom and seeing the greater things that come to fruition. Because the, la- the next time we see Nathaniel by name is in John 21, when Jesus, when the disciples are fishing after the resurrection, Jesus tells them to go and cast their nets. They, they bring in 153 fish and... Jesus reinstates Peter. Nathaniel is one of the seven that was a part of that. So he's been from the very beginning of the ministry, and he's even there after the resurrection at the end. So all this to say, that's a quick example, and and I want to take a few more minutes here, is that there's two truths I want to mention briefly about the path to faith. The first is that Because we have these thresholds. What does that mean for us next? The two truths, one of them, again, from this book, I Once Was Lost, was the idea that the path is mysterious. That when, when skeptics, people who were far from God, had become near to God, it was mysterious how they got it. They didn't fully understand the whole process. It's not like there's a certain formula that if you say these five magic words at the exact right moment, that, that that's going to be the way for them to all do that. So we all just need to learn the five magic words. No, no, no. It's this idea that it's mysterious. We don't know. But here's the thing. This, knowing that it's mysterious allows us to be free from pressure. It allows us to be free from pressure. Why is that? Because as they say in the book, the path to faith is mysterious. To admit that is liberation because the monkey is off our back and onto God's back where it belongs. What does that mean? 
It means that often as Christians, our well-meaning desire might be that I don't even know you yet, but I'm going to try to walk you as a stranger who doesn't know the Lord through phases one through five in our five-minute conversation. Or I feel like I have to just tell you everything without building a relationship with you to know where you actually are and to empathize and to share my story and to walk alongside so we don't build trust. And so we try to paint the third floor shutters of a relationship to bring people in without building the foundation of trust and love. We would never build a house by painting the third floor shutters before we would build a foundation. So the relationship that we build with people far from God has to be the foundation upon which we can slowly keep building. And so it's not that the monkey is on our back. It's on God's back. But what it means is that we've got God's back when he calls us to act. Because we see here that, or I've heard a quotation, I wish I could give you the quote, but, or the, the author, but it says that our job, our job as Christians is to bring Jesus to people. The Holy Spirit's job is to bring people to Jesus. We act like Jesus. We serve like Jesus. We are incarnational. We show who Jesus is. And the Holy Spirit will call people unto himself that people cannot come to the Father without the Holy Spirit working and them responding to that call. And so our job is to be Jesus to people, but it's not our job to try to convert all the, single, all the time everywhere. Our job is to be witnesses, to tell them about Jesus, to walk them through the thresholds. And you might be the one that establishes trust, and you might be the one that gets to walk them across the, the line of faith into the kingdom. But as 1 Corinthians 3 says, you know, Paul plants a seed, Apollos waters it, but God brings the growth. Our job is to be ready in season and out of season, as Paul says in Timothy, for whatever place that he calls us to, that we would be faithful. And so it's not all on our back, but we've got God's back when he calls us to act. So this is the idea. The path is mysterious. It frees us from pressure. Doesn't mean we abdicate our responsibility. It means we step up when God calls us to. And so it doesn't say that we're not witnesses. We are witnesses in a way that is wise and sensitive and allows us to, to recognize that it's mysterious. The next point there is that the, the path to faith is organic. It's organic. It's not something that is, again, a perfect formula. It's natural. It grows. It builds. It develops. They use, I'm not going to go into the quotation on there, but one of the quotes they talk about is referencing Mark chapter 4, the parable of the sower, and how in that parable, there are five different stages it talks about plant growth because it's an organic growth. But so what we want to do is help people be good soil. We want to be good soil, and we want to be able to help them recognize that it's organic. Let me give you an example of this, is that if we have someone who is merely curious about Jesus, and so we invite them to church, and, and the service is like, hey, we want to invite people to church, but maybe it's a, it's a service in which what we're trying to do, and this is what church is, not our church, but churches in general, we say, hey, invite your friends to this special service. Invite your friends to this specific thing that's going to be really great. There's going to be all these awesome things, and we're asking you to invite someone to a place in which they're at threshold four. Like they are seeking and they want to know God and they are thirsty for it. But we can do a poor job. And again, we as the church in general, not necessarily here, but we could do a poor job of saying, oh, invite your non-Christian friends. And so we mistakenly create an event for someone who's at stage four, but we tell you to bring someone who's at stage two. And then all of a sudden they're not ready for stage four yet. They're, they're at a place where they're not ready to be able to truly seek. They're just curious, and all of a sudden, they may feel like it was a bait and switch. Even if it's not, that might be their perception, and then they're back at ground one. 
And so we just need to be aware of these sorts of things that we need to be wise and sensitive, that knowing that it's organic allows us to be wise and sensitive to know where people are on the journey, to not try to take them too far too fast and not try to stay in a place where they're already past it. So when I was uh, and a senior in high school, I ended up getting a 1996 uh, Volkswagen Jetta. It's okay, be jealous, it's fine. Um, and it was a stick shift, and so I had to learn how to drive a stick shift. And so while I'm driving the stick shift, the hardest thing is trying to get out of first gear, right? Just figuring out how do I get the clutch just right? How do I not rev the engine too much? How do I just, what does that look like? And so what happens is, as we know, if we've driven a stick shift before, what happens if we're in first gear and then we try to go to fifth without putting enough power in there? It stalls, right? Like the, it just dies, the, the engine just stops. What happens if we're in fifth gear and someone cuts us off on the 15, which would never happen, and we down, but then we downshift all the way down to first gear, what would happen? Oh, the, car, the transmission would be burnt, the wheels would lock up, we'd feel a huge jerk in the middle of our driving and we'd be really dangerous. So when it comes to driving a stick shift, we recognize that you have to go from first gear to second gear to third gear to fourth gear to fifth gear. When we're reaching out to people who are far from God, when there's different thresholds, being wise enough and sensitive, sensitive enough to know where they are allows us to make sure that we're not going too far too fast and stall the relationship. And it also allows us not to be, if they're here and they're ready, and then we try to go all the way back to trusting a Christian when they're ready to enter the kingdom and we downshift so fast, what happens? Things get burned out, we lose control, we feel a huge jerk, and nobody wants to feel like a huge jerk. <laughs> and so it comes to this moment where we recognize, where we recognize that we need to be wise and sensitive about where people are, and in so doing, be the best kind of witnesses we can to invite people to come and see about Jesus one threshold at a time. So for you, for me, for us, what can we do with this knowledge? What can we do with the idea of the thresholds? What can we do with these truths? How do we take this and, and move forward with it? That I don't, I apologize, I don't typically do this, but um, there are a few more notes that didn't fit on the front page. So if you would like to keep taking notes, you could flip over your page and take them there. If you just want to take pictures of the PowerPoint, that's fine too. But um, as I was finalizing in the, the application part, a few more things came to mind of how we could do this. And so what I want to encourage you to do, me to do, us to do, is to ask God to help us witness. And ask, A-S-K is going to be an acronym because it's easy for us to remember. Ask God to help us witness. So what does that look like? Letter A for ask God to help us witness is to ask yourself, excuse me, these three questions. What three questions? I'm so glad you asked. Uh, on the next screen, there are three questions that the I Once Was Lost book recommends that anytime you're entering into a relationship with someone, a friendship that doesn't know Jesus, or if you're planning an event, maybe you've had Thanksgiving and you recognize there's going to be people who know God and people who don't know God, and, and how do we kind of make sure that this goes well and all those different details. There are three questions that you can ask. Who is my audience? Who is this person? Do I know them? Where are they coming from? What's it look like? Guess how you do that by establishing trust. That's how you know. Who is my audience? What do they need in this stage of the journey? Because if they just need someone who's saying, hey, I just need you to show me what it's like to live curiously because I, I, I trust you, but I don't even know what Jesus meant. Like, what does this look like? Well, that's awesome. You can live curiously. But if what they really need is someone to walk them through that moment of salvation, 
and all you're doing is living curiously, then we're not helping them on that next stage. So we need to prayerfully ask God and in prayer and, and ask him to help us ascertain and, and tell where are they in this journey? What do they need in this stage? And then how can we help them take the next step? Not from the whole marathon from step one to the finish in this five-minute conversation, but the next step. What's the next step people need in their relationship with Jesus? And how can I help them with that? Whatever that looks like, ask ourselves these three questions. That's the letter A. The letter S is strive to be a servant evangelist. A servant evangelist, because let's be honest, many of us, the idea of evangelism is scary. And it feels like we have to know all the answers to all the possible questions that may happen to come up at all times. And so what we do is we say, okay, well, I'm not ready for that, and I'm not a professional at this. I don't know how to do this, so, so I'm just going to minister in the way that I feel comfortable, and, and I'm going to evangelize in a way that makes me feel good. And so maybe that's putting a post up on, on Facebook or Instagram that has a verse. That is awesome. But maybe God is asking you to get in a relationship and make a friendship with someone, and that's a lot messier than just putting something online. Let us not just be so consistent or so stuck to our way we feel comfortable, but how do we serve people by the way we reach out to them? The book says, a servant evangelist washes the feet of the non-Christian in humility and great empathy rather than just doing evangelism in a way that the evangelist is most comfortable with. So this means that we have to get outside of our comfort zone. Rather, it means that we have to expand the comfort zone of our lives so that we are more comfortable doing more things. That this means that instead of us just doing one mode of evangelism or another, it's how do I get my hands dirty? What does this look like? Because if it cost Jesus everything and it was a cost for him, then why would we think it wouldn't be a cost for us? And why would we think that we don't have to walk alongside someone and it could get messy and it could get tough and we could feel betrayed, but... If we're serving evangelists, we're seeing where they are and walking them where they are rather than saying, here's where you need to be next to me. Do it the way I do it. Respond the way that I respond. Rather, it's let me go minister to you. Let me serve you. Let me see how you need help. And let me help you get to the next step. Then K, keep an appropriate amount of urgency. That we cannot say, oh, you know what? That's just how my family member is. You know, we're going to have 30 more years. I'll, I'll, one day at a time over 30 years, we'll eventually get them to the point where, where I can then finally share the, the message of who Jesus is. The problem is, is that we are not guaranteed the next 30 years, nor are we guaranteed the next 30 days or truthfully the next 30 minutes. And so keeping an appropriate sense of urgency doesn't allow us to think that evangelism is on the back burner and one of the things we do. Evangelism, we are witnesses. That is why we are here, is to bring those far from God near to God, to bring people who are acknowledging that they are sick into right relationship with Jesus. It's to model this. It's to be changed by God, to make a change in the world. It's to be called to be witnesses to, those, to what God has done and who he is and how he loves. This is what we are here to do. It's not something we add on like an appendix at the end of a book. It is the story of our lives. And so if we lose that sense of urgency, then we think, you know what? We have 30 years. And this is what the book says. It says, some might say that the urgency in getting people into the kingdom is manipulative or pushy. Like maybe it feels like another sales tactic. We should just let that we should just let folks meander into the kingdom whenever they please. That sounds nice. 
But this is not the picture that Jesus paints. He says, broad is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the road that leads to eternal life. People don't meander into salvation because if people on our own just meandered into salvation, then why did Jesus need to die for us? Why did he need to lay down his life if we were just basically good people who would somehow figure our way out? No, no, no. He had to do it because it has to be an intentional choice. And so it's not manipulative or pushy if you've built a relationship of trust, if you've helped them in their moment of curiosity, if you've helped them to be open to change, if you've helped them seek, or maybe if you're just there at the right time because God knows he can trust you to ask the questions at the very last moment so that they can enter into the kingdom and that you can know that you were a part, whether you're in threshold one, two, three, four, five, or all of it or one of them, that you were a part of helping someone far from God come near to God. That we would have someone who was lost, who was once found, and then we have a party. And so what we look at here is we say, oh, I have 30 years. I'll be able to get to them at that point. But if we knew someone who was deathly ill and we had the antidote, the way to help them, and we said, you know what? I have 30 years to administer that to them. I'll take my time. When the right time comes, I'll do it. We would never do that. Because there's a sense of urgency that this person needs help now. So whatever season and threshold people are in, we can help them now with an appropriate sense of urgency. So as I close, I just want to share a brief story of how Steph, uh, before uh, she got pregnant with uh, uh, Shaylin, she was working at um, a dental assistant office, or dental office, she was a dental assistant, and there was another dental assistant there that, that she had invited to church. Um, the, the woman never came and so, you know, it's, it's tough. You, you, you try to do what you can, and it's, it's discouraging at times. But Steph ended up getting a phone call um, just a couple months ago. And in the phone call, this woman said, you know what? You, I, I just want to let you know that I'm following the Lord now. And, and I want you to know that I realized that you asked me to church, and I, and I always said no, and, and I felt bad, but you were never pushy. And you were someone that, you know, I just, I just we were close. We were, we were good. So what did Steph do? Steph was just someone that helped this person find a Christian she could trust. She wasn't the one, Steph wasn't the one, that walked this person through every single threshold. But she established the first threshold, and out of that trust in who Steph was as a believer, she was then curious enough, and then God brought her on a journey, and so nine, or sorry, seven years later, Steph gets a phone call, and what a joyous call it is to receive, that God had used you to help someone far from God enter into the kingdom of God, and that when we see that, we know that they were lost, and they were found, and now we party. There's no greater joy than when we are going to be able to know that we have been a part of someone's journey to Christ. And so we can acknowledge our thresholds, see where we are, and how we can best help them along that journey. And so as we close this morning, I hope that you're encouraged where you need to be encouraged, that you're challenged where we need to be challenged. Because as we say that people are prayed for, cared for, that you are prayed for, cared for, and loved before you show up into this room, our hope is that the people that you are in relationship with, who are far from God, will know that they are prayed for, cared for, and loved before they ever walk into our room. That the way that you live your life, I live my life, we live our lives, is so powerful and tangible of who Jesus is that they would want to know more. And they would come to church, not because church is the only place where they found Jesus. They come to church because they found Jesus in you and they want what you want. And that we recognize that then they too can come into a right relationship with God.
Because the best way for us to witness is not to try to do all five thresholds at once. The best way for us to witness is for us to invite people to come and see about Jesus one threshold at a time. And that is what you are. You are witnesses. Father, we thank you so much for this morning and we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would stir within us what needs to be stirred. God, I pray that you would um, bring to mind people that we know who are far from you, that you have put us in their lives for such a time as this. Whatever threshold they're in, we ask you to help us. We ask you to help us to be servant evangelists, to keep an appropriate amount of urgency, and just to ask for your wisdom. Lord, thank you for rescuing us that have been rescued. I pray for those of us in this room that maybe have not entered into your kingdom, that they would know that today can be the day and now can be the hour. And I pray, Lord, that we would continue to see lives being changed because of who you are, because of what you've done, because of how you love. And thank you that we have the honor of being witnesses to those things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.